This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I'm your host, Sam LaCrosse, here with a very special guest, a friend of mine, my first author friend of mine, in, uh, that I, well, actually, no, that's not true. I've had a couple authors on the show. My first scribe media friend, author friend on the show, Dr. Jay Joshi. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good, good, man. I, I was going to say, I've, I, you know, you reached out to me, I would have to think, longer than six months ago at this point, probably like nine months ago, honestly. I don't know if it's been like a full year, but it's been a while. And I remember, you know, you, I, I think I had just really gotten my book out probably. And then you were kind of going through the process of either, I think, finishing your manuscript or going down and doing your draft or whatever. But it, it's been a long time, man. And, it, and you've come a long way. And now, you know, we were here to talk about your book, Burden of Pain Today, newest uh, number one bestseller on Amazon, which is just incredible and so super super cool i how does that feel man by the way i never i think i've ever asked this by of any other author how does it feel it it feels like a welcomed validation right like you, you feel a sense of relief to know that your book is being accepted but then you also feel a certain level of excitement that now what do I do? What else can I do more? How can I right. amplify my message? So it's just nice feeling of validation and excitement where you feel like your work is justified and you're looking to see now what other work can I do? How more can I push it? Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully this can add to that ecosystem, man. And I think that's kind of where, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of move chronologically through the book. And, and something that really jumped out to me right away was, I don't have the specific line in front of me, so forgive me if I butcher this, but Basically, it was kind of very like, you know, uh, Chuck Palahniuk, Fight Clubian sort of reference where you say, um, in losing everything, I found meaning right from the start of the book. And your book is a tale of a lot of, well, it's, it, it's in the title of the book, Burden of Pain. You know, it's about, uh, it's a lot of sad stories. It's a lot of trauma. It's a lot of people that were abused. It's a lot of this or that or whatever. And so maybe go into your background a little bit and what that kind of means to you surrounding where you are now and where you've been. Sure. So I'm a primary care physician. I did my medical school and my training at the University of Illinois Medical Center. Uh, in between starting my practice and completing my training, I got my MBA at Chicago Booth. I started practicing in Northwest Indiana in 2015. I scrapped up enough to start my own practice in late 2016. And by 2017, I was running the first primary care practice in Northwest Indiana that incorporated behavioral health, telepsychiatry into the primary care setting. We were getting recognition, we were featured in NPR, and we attracted the wrong kind of attention because we were dealing with patients that had diabetes, hypertension, and chronic pain, and substance use dependency. Well, the latter two patient groups require certain controlled substances that includes Schedule two pain medications, opioids, as well as substance use dependency medications like Suboxone. In the eyes of the DEA, treating those patients came across as if I was enabling drug addiction. So the DEA sent an undercover agent to my practice under the pretense of being a patient with cramp-like leg pain. He then told me he was a truck driver from Florida had all this background, fake ID, all sorts of things. We checked his prescription database. Of course, everything looked clean because it was a dummy patient. 
Uh, and after validating and going through the basic checks and balances that would happen in any primary care setting, I made the decision to continue what he claimed to be his treatment for his chronic pain, which was opioid medications. He had asked for a moderate strength dose. I said I didn't feel comfortable giving him that high of a dose. So I lowered his dose and I gave him what the CDC would recommend as a starting dose for a non-opioid naive patient with chronic pain. Well, after four visits, that patient stopped coming. And then I found out that he was actually an undercover agent and that my trusting of that patient came across as a crime, as what they would call prescribing outside of the scope of medicine, which is a term I delve into quite a bit in my book. And then in 2018, I was indicted for prescribing Norco 7.5-325 milligrams twice a day to an undercover DEA agent. This was before Ruan v. United States, which I was an amicus party on the Supreme Court case, where uh, physicians now have the right to claim good faith as a defense against similar crimes when indicted. Back then, I didn't have that right. So effectively, it was what the DEA agent said versus what I said, what the DEA agent interpreted versus the video transcript of my clinical care. And lo and behold, the non-clinically trained DEA agent's interpretation of my clinical behavior, despite having a video, despite having audio evidence, despite what me providing clinical guidelines for what best practice would be for a chronic pain patient, they still deemed that to be a crime. And effectively, I had to plead guilty. Uh, I ended up serving 11 months, one week, and three days in federal prison. Flash forward now, I've regained my medical license. I've been reinstated into Medicare. I filed a formal complaint against that DEA agent for misconduct in the case, which I'm sure you've uh, read when you discussed my book. Uh, We'll kind of get into that a little bit later. And because I was an amicus party on the Supreme Court case, I now stand a very good chance to get my conviction vacated. Although it's not precluding me from resuming my practice, it's just nice to get that off my back because, I mean, I don't really want to be held for liable for a crime I didn't commit. Yeah, of course. Well, well, that's... It's so interesting because, like, you know, you're from, are you from Northwest Indiana? I was born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I lived in Jeffersonville, Indiana, which is the southern tip of Indiana, right across Ohio from Louisville, till I was about eight. And then we moved to the Chicagoland area. Northwest Indiana is pretty much a suburb of Chicago, but it's like the perfect blend of southern Indiana and Midwest Chicago charm. So I would say I was very familiar with that culture and I have a very strong bond with the people in that area. Yeah, because I I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I'm I'm from Ohio. I know people that have just been crushed, like devastated by the opioid epidemic. So anytime like someone brings up those type of medications, those types of drugs to me automatically, like the rabbit ears kind of go up and you kind of say like, okay, like is this person abusing this kind of, you know, practice on people? Is this person this or that or whatever? And I think, you know, the good thing that your book has really, I think, done for a lot of uh, medical practitioners is really kind of say like, hey, you're not, it's not just to automatically label someone the bad guy just because of the use of a type of medication that they deem appropriate. And you mentioned that with the Supreme Court as well, but, or the Supreme Court ruling as well. But I want to kind of go back a little bit because I want to make sure I have all my facts right while doing this. So you say like you haven't you draw an analogy like really early inside of the book between you know little lies and getting stabbed by a knife a bunch of times which i think is a really you know apt analogy for kind of getting lying across especially when you get lied by to people close to you so were your employees like you know before the dea agent came in and really undercut your medical practice what were your employees dealing these opiates to other people off like were they kind of muling them off off the street or kind of putting them on the street like like what was that whole scenario off of kind of going because you said you had a lot of issues with trust in your employees and that kind of eroded which eventually led to this whole you know really you know terrible thing happening to you in your practice yeah you know as any physician working in an outpatient setting whether that's academic private practice you're very dependent on your staff. They organize the patient charts for you. They prepare the patient visits for you. Everything starts and ends with how they prepare the clinic. What happened was there was one employee 
I later found out that she had lied on her application. She was not a certified medical assistant. She, from what I understand, has a drug problem, but I still don't have the full details because the Munster police are not unsealing that evidence. So it's part of the complaint I filed against the DEA agent because effectively the DEA and Munster police knew something about this employee that I didn't that made her, in their eyes, somebody that's likely to tell false statements that can be used against me. And, and I'll explain it because it's a very strong statement. So this one employee was forging scripts under my name and writing herself quite a bit of controlled substances. What I also found out is that she was soliciting other patients to write scripts on their behalf. So patients of mine that were already receiving a certain control substance, she was asking if she could write control substances for them using my information, and then they would fill something, and then they would take the scripts as well. I know this because I had two separate patients write an affidavit in which she, they, she, uh, she was proposi- which they were propositioned by that employee, but they refused. And so my understanding is that this one employee was trying to do something systematic. And I think the other employee, the office manager, likely knew it was going on, but didn't say anything or didn't understand the extent of it, but was aware in some capacity. Because it's very hard for basically a two-staff clinic for one person not to know what the other person is doing. And so... I don't know the extent to which she was involved, the office manager, but I know that the office manager basically left the same time that employee was fired for forging my signatures. So I think there was something there. I just don't know the full extent. And again, that's part of the complaint and why I've been trying for over three years to unseal so much of that evidence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's, it's just so like, it's so disturbing in a lot of ways that, you know, stuff like this can happen to, you know, and I understand like, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Cause I mean, you do want to weed out bad people when you can, but when you crush innocent people in the process by doing so, and then they have this power of the state kind of held over your head and then kind of comes down on a guy who just wants to open a medical practice and run a small business basically and help people and use what you're trained for your entire life. Because you, you opened your practice probably what in your mid thirties, 32. Yeah. 32. Okay. So early thirties. So you're, you're okay. Yeah. Early thirties. So basically like, you know, it, it's, it's just so interesting to kind of see that dichotomy evolve there. And I think, you know, part of it indirectly what they saw, but what you saw, what you're arguing in your book is the correct practice is that your response to the opioid epidemic is a more holistic problem. You're not just willing, so willing to label it as a good thing, a bad thing, whatever you want to use what I think really a good objective person and particularly a physician in this case uses to evaluate something and evaluate a problem. You want to look at all the variables, all the factors, everything that kind of goes into this. So you're not just saying that like opiates are the solution to everything. Like we see in like dope sick or like we see in everything where you're just, you know, shoving Oxycontin down your patient's throats when they come in with a sprained ankle basically. But you're not saying that, you know, look, if people are suffering here, and these drugs that can help these people are, you know, can you be used to help them manage something that is making them suffer, then you want to obviously use that responsibly in a responsible fashion. So like, what I want to ask is that you kind of came of age during this whole, when people began to realize that opioid abuse was a severe problem in a lot of cases. So where did you get that balanced approach in terms of handling that issue? And I, and I've gotten to know you at this point, you think of a lot of issues this way, like, where did you get kind of like that balanced, nuanced, discussive, you know, mindset from that helped you inform how you ran your practice? Honestly, just by talking to patients, the most fundamental thing you can do as a physician is to respect your patients and listen to them when they're talking. So I would talk to patients and I got a sense of when to trust patients, when to administer some degree of oversight, when to order a urine drug screen when to let a patient go for one month, go for two weeks before having them come back in for a refill on their medications. 
So you get a feel for how much laxity you want to provide a patient and how strict you want to be. And a lot of it comes down to the trust you build with the patient, the relationship in which you develop over time, the actual medications you're prescribing them. So it's not just about, oh, here's some Suboxone. Oh, here's some Tramadol. You come back in one week. You come back in one month. It's not transactional. And I think the way law enforcement is trying to simplify it, and to their credit, I think the DEA is starting to realize that harm reduction is now the better approach, and they're slowly starting to go away from their um, aggressive kind of Nixonian policies on things. But yep. if you truly respect patients with chronic pain or substance use dependency, and you truly see them as patients with medical conditions, you're going to trust them and talk to them like they have any other medical condition. You would not go to a diabetic patient and say, you know what? I'm not going to refill your medications. You're eating chocolate cake all night. What? You're not exercising? I'm not going to refill your medications. Why yeah. would I do that? You're, you're non-compliant. No condition would that be considered good quality of care except for patients with substance use dependency and chronic pain because we stigmatize the medication because we've assumed that the medication itself transcends the quality of care that the medications were a part of. And when we lose sight of that context, all of a sudden it becomes just medication X, oversight Y. If X doesn't correlate with Y, that's a crime. And I think you're starting to see the ramifications of that because we start creating guideline after guideline, policy after policy, you know, going after people like me, going after people like you. And then what we see, overdoses continue to rise. We're not solving the core problem. And I think we're realizing this slowly, slowly, but we still have this kind of war on drugs mindset, even though we know it doesn't work. It's just so hard to correct people's perceptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's, I think, a really key point. And you mentioned the thing about about the Nixon administration. And to be completely honest, I do not know hardly anything about like what the war on drugs constituted, everything else. It's a subject I know very, very little about. So this is actually very helpful for me because... You know, I've heard that, you know, I don't think like I've heard that, you know, Mark Manson, who wrote um, Subtle Art Not Giving a Fuck, said like basically he, he thinks that the thing that has harmed the United States culturally and socially more than anything has been the criminalization of drugs in a lot of ways. Because a lot of, you know, things that have come through that system proliferate through so many other areas of life or causes a decline in this in this area, that area, you know, whichever. And I think a, a prime example that you cite in the book where this really tamp down state mandated approach to the uh, delivery of medications to your patients came down with that story of the woman you describe in the book as Megan after that DEA, the DEA raid that you have on your, on your practice. And I don't want to rob you of your moment to tell your story, but, but that one was, that one was tough to, to get through in a lot of ways because that that's exactly what you're kind of arguing here is that, you know, when you do this, you know, you play with a lot of fire and getting, a lot of innocent people very, very, who are already suffering, you you risk getting them more hurt by doing this. So, so would you mind telling that story? Yeah, certainly. That's a very tough story. And there's somewhat of a positive note that I'd like to end that story with that I think the audience yeah, would really absolutely. appreciate. So a patient of mine, Megan, um, she had a lot of ups and downs in her life. Um, she was, um, abusing medications. She was abusing illicit substances, but she wanted to get her life back together. And she had underlying anxiety that was never properly treated. When she came to me, we worked together. I had spoken to a psychiatrist whom I required Megan to see. After the consultation with the psychiatrist, she and I, Megan and I, landed on a combination of Suboxone and Xanax transitioning eventually to clonopin, which is a less addictive form of benzodiazepine. Yep. So by the DEA standards, she would be considered a high-risk patient because she's on two controlled substances. But by any clinical standards, she is a compliant patient who is finally addressing an underlying psychiatric issue and working to wean herself off of substance abuse. So she is a patient with a substance use dependency and an underlying anxiety. She was, as part of a protocol, participating in the telepsychiatry program. 
So she would see me in the primary care capacity, and then she'd participate in a telepsychiatry program. The whole idea is that we'd provide comprehensive primary care and behavioral health while managing her medications that contain addictive potential, but with her behavioral compliance, we mitigate the risk of abuse. Well, she was on that Tuesday, and I will never forget this because it was two days before Thanksgiving holiday. On that Tuesday, she came in for telepsychiatry because every Tuesday was telepsychiatry day. Well, that was the day the DEA decided to pay a visit. Now, from Megan's standpoint, she's been through a lot of trauma in her life, a lot of unfortunate events happening to her, and a lot of self-inflicted mistakes that she has made. But she's a person and deserves to be treated like a person regardless. Well, the DEA agent did not like the fact that Megan was crying and complaining. Megan was repeatedly saying, stop abusing my doctor. You got the wrong person. Stop it. You don't know what you're doing. Stop it. And the DEA agents, and again, they had AK-47s. They were oh strapped God. with bulletproof vests. They had military gear on running around the clinic. I, I don't even know why they were doing that. The clinic was not even that big. It was a four-room clinic with a back room. I don't even understand how far they were running back and forth. I mean, they must have gotten tired just going back. But uh, regardless, yeah. they, about 15 individuals in military-style gear, AK-47s running around. One of them points a gun. No, no. So what, what that agent did, one of them said, lie down on the ground. So... She started lying on the ground, but she was still complaining, still yelling at the DEA agent. Then the DEA agent takes the gun and points it at her and tells her to be quiet. At that point, I, I just, I, I, I couldn't stay silent anymore. I literally, because the DEA agents had me pinned in a certain corner of the clinic while they were doing all of yeah, this. Yeah, like they had you against the wall, right? Like they were pinning you against yeah. the wall, basically. Yeah. Yeah, like no, nobody knew what was going on. Like I was pinned. Right. The patients were pinned to a wall. It, it was just like, we were all kind of like, what was going on here? I, I mean, I, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I break and I say, stop this. You can put me on the ground. You can point the gun at me, but you will not do that to my patient. And then finally, the DEA agent relented. And Megan sat on the uh, chair at the other side of the waiting room by herself. And nobody was allowed to come near her. And I think the DEA agent realized that he went too far. And then I kind of went back to my corner where, you know, I was held and all this. But I, I think the DEA agents knew that they crossed the line at that point. I mean, I, I can't imagine, like, why they would justify coming into a clinic with AK-47 and bulletproof vests. But, I mean, I think at that point, that DEA agent realized he made a big mistake. And so he kind of backed off. But instead of acknowledging that, they simply pretended like nothing happened. Well, two days later... No, no, this one day later, um, Megan comes back and I, I console her. I make sure that she's okay. And then I speak to her mom. I speak to her as Megan again. And I find out that um, she died by suicide. She died by overdose. Uh, she lost access to her medications. She was traumatized by the event. Well, I'm not a I'm not a trauma informed clinical specialist, so I don't want to um, just casually throw out causation when I need to be more informed in that. But I would surmise, based on my level of clinical training, that that trauma induced a series of events that culminated in her death by suicide. And again, saying this not as somebody who's a trauma informed specialist, but as a first person witness and as a primary care physician, and. Um, I, uh, it was a few days before her daughter's seventh birthday. Uh, and this was a 2018, um, flash forward now with the release of burden of pain, I got in contact with a, um, clinical group out of the, uh, the VA clinic in Birmingham, Alabama. They are conducting a study on patient suicides by abrupt cessation of treatment and medications. And uh, uh, one of the um, uh, administrators of that study read that part in the book. And now um, Megan's family is in contact with uh, those administrators. So I hope and I pray that Megan's story 
gets chronicled in this clinical study so that it can be used to inform health policy decisions and that nothing like this ever happens again because I, I just don't know how the DEA can justify that kind of behavior or even look at themselves in the mirror after they behave in such a way. Well, that is wonderful that that is that is happening now that that is a very happy ending and I'm glad you I'm glad you did mention that and that makes me feel a lot better but but, but yeah man it, it's just it's something that like you know these these people and I used to be a person that was very very hard on you know I was a teenager young 20s like I was I was kind of very very hard on everyone I still am hard on a lot of people myself most certainly but um I've I've come to be very very sympathetic for people who are having problems like Megan has and like too many people in our country have with substance abuses, like with alcohol or drugs or whoever else or whatever else, excuse me. And, and and it's, it's not something that, you know, people should try to, you know, for lack of a better term, like either rub someone's nose in it or like just kind of, you know, beat the brows of the people that are doing this just to say like, stop or do this or whatever that they can't control what is going on inside of their heads. Their brains are altered by this kind of stuff. And, and so like, like with those, type of instances, that instance being one that's, that's probably on the, on the pretty high profile as being a, a really tragic one, in my opinion, is it just, it leads to so many bad things. And, and to you after that, and with this whole, you know, after this DEA uh, snafu happens, after they raid your, uh, they raid your practice, they come in, they are, the undercover agent comes in and, you know, and help leads to your indictment. You eventually go into the legal proceedings and, during, I, I want to touch on, you know, before your trial started and during your trial started, you were really slandered by a lot of media outlets and you were really slandered by a lot of other people saying that like, you know, this guy is a drug dealer. This guy wants to get people up on opiates. Like he's, he's, you know, farming stuff out of his, out of his practice. Like, I mean, you know, these people really, you know, people were starting to sue you. People talked to, you were using the overarching specter of the opioid epidemic to, to crush you. And they did this to crush you and to a lot of other people, I would presume. I don't know how many people you've networked with during the course of this process or how many people have reached out to you for being primary care physicians that have been affected by this. But like, that was another thing that shocked me was kind of like that weaponization of the media and even like your local media in that town to kind of turn you into a bad guy. And, you know, even kind of using those situations we just talked about to really paint you as someone you weren't. So like in looking back on it, like, like how did that kind of, how do you think it affected the trial? How did it affect you? How did it affect the people who were examining you legally? Like, like break that down for me, if you wouldn't mind. It effectively destroyed any sense of defense I ever had. Uh, I mean, it, it destroyed my personal identity. I lost sense of who I, who I was really. I mean, I'll put it to you this way. Propaganda works, and it works even when you know it's happening. There's something about the mental condition that if something is repeated long enough, even if it's a lie, you perceive it to be true. There were so many articles perpetuated by so many different outlets over and over saying I was the largest drug dealer, or um, I, I think this was the ninth or 10th in the state of Indiana, which I still don't understand where they got these numbers from because the yeah, office of the office of inspector general actually uh, provided corrected data on the actual number of opioids I prescribed, but somehow they got to six thousand number, and they kept saying six thousand, six thousand, six thousand, and then from there it kind of morphed into largest drug dealer in the state of Indiana, then it morphed into interstate drug dealer, and then other people started getting the action and. Another physician whose name is J.D. Joshi in the state of Illinois, he mm -hmm. sued me trying to extort $1.5 million out of me by saying that I was imitating him, which if you think about it logically, doesn't make any sense. So he's yes. a pain specialist. I'm a primary care physician. If I were imitating him, wasn't he committing a crime, at least according in the eyes of the Department of Justice? So it, it was this bizarre confluence of just illogical thinking and uh, effectively he, he got on the cover of the Chicago Tribune with this frivolous article stating that I was imitating him and my imitation of him somehow led to the DEA indicting me for prescribing outside the scope of medicine. I, I 
I don't know the logic in that. I'm simply iterating what I heard. And it just a testament to how much misinformation existed in the opioid epidemic. We talk about pandemic misinformation, but we don't talk about opioid misinformation. I think because yes. the pandemic, everything happened so quickly, so suddenly, we were able to keep track of it. With the opioid epidemic, things move so slow so we don't notice the lies when they start to come, and then we just start falling for them. So essentially what happened was, because the articles were so numerous, because the articles were so sensational, the public had no choice but to believe them. I had no defense. What was I supposed to say? No, these articles are not true. They'll come back and say, well, why are there so many of them? Why, 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 why did the Chicago Tribune run that if that's not true? Why is this yeah. on WGN if that's not true? And you are left in this position where your words lose meaning. So if you say, no, I provided adequate care to that DEA agent. I treated him correctly. I provided the necessary oversight. They'll just look at you like, poor guy, he's in denial. And they yeah, just, right. they don't they don't know how they are influenced and the way they think. And it's one of those situations where you have to really understand mass media has an outsized influence in the way individuals, people think. And we don't like to acknowledge it. We like to all fancy ourselves as independent thinkers. But at the end of the day, we're all susceptible to the broader narrative. And it influences how we think as individuals and how we see ourselves in society. And the DEA knew that by destroying my identity and recharacterizing myself as whatever sort of boogeyman they had laid in their mind, they could effectively destroy any self-defense I had. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you say that, like, you lost sense of who you were, did you begin to think that you were a bad person, like that you were a drug dealer, that you were someone that was helping to destroy lives? Like, 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 like what was the sentiment that you held in your head based off of that absorption of kind of like that medicalized propaganda that you said? I lost confidence in my clinical thinking. I lost yeah. confidence in my ability to think for myself. Uh, I lost my ability to defend myself. So whatever abuse was lashed out at me, I wasn't able to respond to it. I wasn't able to stand up for myself. I never gave into the notion that I was a criminal, but I lost my ability to stand up for myself when that accusation was lashed at me. Yeah, And so... I developed a learned helplessness where I would just effectively be overwhelmed, have to succumb to whatever sort of abuses that would come my way, whatever I'd read in the newspapers, whatever people would write about me on social media. And, you know, sad to say that there were, there were a decent amount of people that took chop shots at me during this whole uh, period. And, you know, it'd be like somebody from high school saying, oh, I always knew you were a POS or somebody from college saying, hey, remember that time you said this and this to me? Well, this is payback. And I mean, I don't consider myself like a bad person or uh, whatever, but I, I think that when something like this happens, a lot of unexpressed emotions come out of people in general and people will behave in ways that they normally wouldn't. I mean, I had... I had people on social media talking about how they were going to hunt me down and shoot me. And I, I don't know if I would characterize that as an overt death threat. Cause I know people throw that term out loosely. There was never an instance where somebody was like, I am plotting to kill you. Here's my plan of action. But mm -hmm. there were people who were just like, this guy needs to, this, some, this guy needs to be hung, hanged. This guy needs to get what's coming to him. And then, like I said, somebody said, he's going to take me to the, backside of a barn and shoot me or something and so it, it was um it was really bizarre when something like this happened uh, you just you, you lose your self you lose your self-confidence and you, you lose your self-esteem yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that counts as a death threat. I, I'm not a, I'm, I'm a legal expert, but I would say that probably counts as one. That's I, and I remember reading that in the book. I was like, holy shit! But but I, I think that you know where. I want to touch on something you said earlier, because you said like, 
the DEA and the medical practice do not align in the way they view certain things. And I think the one thing that allows them to do in involving with this propaganda campaign that they ran against you and other physicians during this time was that they, I think the primary charge that you said that they threw against you in the trial, the thing they kept coming back to is that you were quote unquote, enabling an addict during your process of being a, uh, you know, administering these medications to your patients. So um, what does that mean? Could you go into that a little bit more? And like, what were they saying that that did? And why did that make you a criminal in the eyes of the DEA and the other uh, state sponsored, uh, you know, or I would say state um, legal associations? Okay, two points on that. One, what I'm about to say reflects outdated views. I think the DEA has done a great amount to educate themselves and improve their thinking clinically since then. So I want to give the DEA credit for improving itself. I mean, they still haven't taken accountability for the things that they've done, but I think they're starting to improve. And two, uh, the state of Indiana, the local gov- uh, local police or state police never actually filed any sort of case against me. And that's relatively rare because in situations like this, you tend to see things pile on where there's something at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level. This was simply a DEA agent choosing to come after me. Now, the reason why the DEA came after me was an intense focus on the prescription of controlled substances, the act of prescribing what the DEA deems a controlled substance, a select list of medications that have abusive potential. Schedule one drugs are illegal drugs. Schedule two drugs are your common opioids that have higher degree of addiction. And schedule five drugs tend to have lower degree of addiction. So schedule two are Norco, Tramadol, typically what you'd see prescribed in a primary care setting. What this DEA agent was really focused on was me prescribing Norco 7.5-325 to this undercover agent. They removed everything else around the clinical context and just focused on that transaction. Now, what the DEA does is they'll say that transaction is fundamentally illegal unless you do things to prove that it's not illegal. You could require a urine drug screen. You could check prescription database. You could order imaging studies. So there's a sort of quid pro quo mindset in the eyes of the DEA. And again, you're not dealing with clinically trained experts. You're dealing with law enforcement that focus on drug transactions. So they look at everything as an illegal act and say, how do we equate the value of this act with this behavior? So effectively what happened is that the DEA agent then said, Excuse me. The DEA agent said, you did not provide the necessary oversight. Yes, you ordered a urine drug screen, but you didn't mandate it. Yes, you checked the prescription database, but you didn't require it. So the oversight was lacking. Even though you initiated it, you didn't complete it. So it was lacking and therefore it was illegal. <coughs> I apologize. No, no, you're, you're totally fine. And, and I think that that's you know, and you kind of go into this point where you say, like, you know, you believe that you were potentially entrapped and that you in, you had to incriminate yourself and everything surrounding that because, like, you know, the this whole thing is just like, you know, when I when I hear you talk about it, especially, it just sounds like just it's basically just like gaslighting at the end of the day. Yeah. It's, and I want to get to this point, like, in the next, it's like you know, saying that you did the thing when you actually did not do the thing, and then getting yourself to say, like, well maybe I did do the thing and they're like, okay, I got you. Then I can get you, get you on this, make you the yeah. villain, make you the bad guy. And then, you know, put another body in jail for selling, you know, for, for, you know, quote unquote selling opiates, even though you're prescribing opiates, you're a, you're a licensed physician. So, um, so what, it, what, do you think that that was accurate in terms of like your, you believe that you were kind of forced to incriminate yourself and that you were entrapped by, by the DEA and the other people who were really kind of forcing you into this corner? Okay. Let me phrase it to you this way, using this line of logic, and I think it'll help encapsulate the incongruency in thinking. The DEA would effectively ask me, are you absolutely sure that that patient was not a drug addict? 
And I would have to say, no, I'm not absolutely sure. As a matter of fact, I would look at all the oversight I would provide. Now, urine drug screen, check your prescription database, order imaging studies, but can you 100% guarantee that that patient is not abusing medications? No, you can't, but you can provide sufficient oversight to then justify why you made the decision to trust that patient. So the DEA would essentially simplify that clinical decision-making, all the underlying medical uncertainty, and simply say, well, you didn't know for sure. And so effectively I'm saying, well, yeah, I'm being honest by saying I wasn't 100% sure. And they would look at it saying like, well, you didn't provide a necessary oversight. You're acknowledging that you didn't know. And it's one of those situations where had I lied and said, yeah, I felt absolutely sure, then they would have said, well, he was an undercover agent. You're lying. So they kind of put you in this catch-22 situation where you either acknowledge that there was uncertainty and you didn't know for sure and you incriminate yourself or you lie and you say you are absolutely sure and then they come back and say, well, he was an undercover agent. You're lying. So you're lying to a DEA agent. So it's a lose-lose type of situation and it underscores how physicians find themselves in situations where they're effectively self-incriminating themselves just by acknowledging the clinical decision-making at hand. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it, it's very, it's, again, it's just very, very interesting how this comes out. So, and you, you used a term in the book that I, that I really enjoyed called uh, medical McCarthyism, which I think is a pretty appropriate term. You know, I, I've, I've studied the topic a lot in detail. I've written, I've written posts and done podcasts about how terrifying that topic was. It's, it's basically like what you said, the, weaponization of the DOJ against doctors as an overcorrection of the opioid crisis. And, and, and I think that it's kind of like, it's something that, you know, is very, I've never thought about it this way, but like, do you, do you think that like, do you think it's like a cultural thing that is so embedded in these law enforcement agencies that they just were so hard nosed on getting this right? Do you think it was like, we want to reinforce this narrative. We want to punish people. Like, where do you think that comes from inside of that attitude they have towards these people and towards you? Well, in the mid 2000s, the DEA was quite lax on opioid prescribing. And yes. for many yep. years, the DEA was increasing the quota of opioids that were allowed to be prescribed because the DEA, insurance companies, and medical societies were all in agreement that opioids were the most cost-effective way to treat pain. Somewhere along the lines, the perception of opioids as substances of abuse changed that paradigm. And then we started to see opioids go down and the DEA start to overreact because they were perceived as being complacent or lackadaisical in the oversight of opioid abuses. And I don't know exactly whether that was a good faith, good faith misunderstanding of the opioid prescribing and opioid overdose data, or whether there was other influences involved. But we're starting to understand that the data that was being used to justify this intense crackdown on opioid prescriptions was based on conflated data that misconstrued heroin deaths, fentanyl deaths with prescription opioid deaths. But he just said opioids. Opioids are bad. And they construed prescription opioids as all of the above. So they had this intense crackdown. And anybody who was prescribing opioids without just intense fear or intense hesitancy was effectively targeted by the DEA. And they would come out with these metrics. And this is this just boggles my mind. They have these metrics on how to identify a high-risk prescriber. And so... Are you dealing with uh, a high percentage of patients who are unemployed? Are you dealing with a high percentage of employees who lack a college education? Well, I mean, if you're in Northwest Indiana and you're treating primarily Medicaid patients, that's your patient population. They're not bad people. They're Americans, just like you and I. But according to this risk score metric, you're now dealing with an individual who is a high-risk patient. So if you don't force that urine drug screen, or if you don't require them to come every two weeks, then you're enabling addictive type of behavior. And my mindset was to provide cost-effective care. So if there was a person who could only afford, based off of gas and family circumstances, to come once a month, 
and I developed a trusting relationship after some time, instead of forcing that patient to come every two weeks, I would say, you know what? Come once a month. That's okay. It's I, I get it. And that type of trust factor was deemed to be lackadaisical oversight and enabling poor behavior. So you you right. am I so the whole general theme of is this. Whether you're dealing with how I decided to trust that undercover DE agent, how I decided to trust my patients, whenever there was a certain degree of uncertainty, if I felt I had garnered enough trust or enough cooperation with that patient, I would default to trusting that patient. Now, that creates uncertainty. Just like you and I are sitting here and having this conversation, am I really talking to you? Or am I talking to an AI rendition of Sam? How do I know I'm talking to you? Well, I hope I'm choosing. Real. By the way, I was with my parents earlier about this. Like, right where I, have, I hope you're talking to the real me. I don't know. Maybe we're all in the simulation at this point. Who knows? But I don't know. Keep keep going. I'm sorry. Exactly right. But all of this entails a certain degree of trust. So much entails trust. But within trust comes uncertainty. So how can you then take that uncertainty, construe it to be criminal behavior? And then expect healthcare to have the same degree of trust. And I think law enforcement is losing sight of that. And I think they're slowly, slowly starting to come around now. Yeah. And we'll definitely, that was actually a good portion of, of a couple of questions I had later, but I do want to stick on the more uh, legalized front here because specifically sure. you talk about a specific case in Cuyahoga County, which is funny enough. It caught my eye because I'm from Lorain County and I used to go to Cuyahoga County all the time. I used to play you know sports there. I used to do a bunch of things there. So it's like really, really close to where I grew up, which was so shocking to look at this. And so the, the the basic theme you derive from that incident where it was kind of like they, they did like general analysis of the area and you kind of said like they did a bunch of like just general screenings of, you know, drug abuse and everything surrounding those things. And the conclusion you came up with, which I find to be incredibly frightening, is that basically that the medical industry is now becoming so legalized that the medicine is kind of being, and the, and the medicinal stuff on the side, the physician care on the side is being slowly squeezed out by the constraints of the legal system. And, you know, basically you, you kind of just basically say it straight up, like who loses when you do this? And the answer is very clear. The people in the medical practice and not the legal practice, because you're taking the bounds out of the medical and you're making it a legal problem now instead of a healthcare procedure. And so the people who automatically become disenfranchised by this and lose because of this are the patients primarily and then the doctors like yourself who are trying to help the patients so uh, speak on that if you wouldn't mind like because i find that to be incredibly troubling it's kind of over like this kind of is tinged like a lot of what we've talked about already but like just how embedded is this becoming inside of what you've seen in terms of just primary care or in healthcare in general yeah so the law is exact the law is rigid and the law has set parameters for behavior. Anything outside of that, any sort of deviation is questioned, is construed to be civil liability, criminal action. Medicine by nature is both an art and a science. It requires fluctuation. It requires a touch. There has to be a difference. There has to be a uniqueness. And so there's, a major difference between law and medicine that we mostly talk about in abstract terms, right? We talk about, you know, the, the Lincoln lawyer or the kind of, you know, countryside doctor. And we have these kind of, you know, pastoral idyllic views of what these ideal professions should be. But we never talk about what happens when they go head to head. When the law introduces itself into medicine, the first thing that goes is the deviation and the individual patient touch because that creates an undue variation that the law does not recognize. As a result, we have standardized care. Now, that may sound like a good idea, right? Everybody receives the same care. All care should be standardized and equated to one metric. Well, the problem is we're all different. We have different pain tolerances. We have different experiences. We have different reactions to different medications. So medicine has to be different and uniquely cultivated to each person's different needs. When we lose track yes. of that, we then lose the essence of medicine and we effectively lose that patient touch in healthcare. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is, it does make it so like, like you said, throughout this whole conversation, it is not a black and white issue. There are many shades of this that we need to look into. And as particularly with specific, because you're dealing with human beings, there's nothing more variable than a human being. So like, how can you just put everyone inside of this box and say like, this is the thing you have to kind of maneuver and whatever. It just, it doesn't seem to make a lot. And I'm far from a physician like you are, but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And I think it shows that your book is really working on educating someone like me who is very unfamiliar with this topic to get familiar with this topic. And so the last point I wanted to hit here primarily is that you are, are you saying kind of like, so your basic, I think solution, and please correct me on this is that the government and the legal systems need to get more out of the way and let the medical practitioners do the medical practitioning on site of their patients. So is, well, first of all, is that what you are advocating for primarily? And two, what do you think will happen if that does happen? What, what benefits do you see getting from your proposed solution, what you're laying out to people? I wouldn't look at it like an either or prospect. I wouldn't look at it like okay. the law should be involved. The law should quote unquote get out. I would look at it more like the relationship needs to restructure that okay. the laws should not be restrictive in nature, but rather they should balance individual behavior with broader oversight. And I give examples of abortion, vaccine mandates, vaping. The risk in healthcare is always based on the context in which that behavior is evaluated. Always. Yes. You cannot say that for other conditions, but in healthcare, that's always the case. And the laws, therefore, should not be fundamentally restrictive or simply say, I'm involved in this case, I'm not involved in that case. Rather, they should have a balance between individual behavior, broader oversight, and what is the best way to maintain that balance. Let me give you an example. And this is a rather controversial one. Why are we measuring the legality of abortion in terms of weeks? Who came up with 15 weeks? Who came up with eight weeks, six weeks? And so you have these terms like quickening or, hey, at 15 weeks, the nervous system develops because, you know, everybody becomes an embryology expert all of a sudden. Right. Um, yes. No, that, that's not the case at all. We shouldn't measure the legality of abortion in terms of weeks. But we've just been so indoctrinated to thinking that way that that's all uh, we know how to think. So I would question people to rethink healthcare laws and get away from this fundamentally restrictive mindset and look at healthcare laws as a balance between broader oversight and individual patient rights. Those types of laws are more effective and better for patient care overall. Yes. Yes. I mean, I I think even though like abortion is a, a naturally a controversial issue, I think that that is kind of a very good, you know, metric to go by a lot of these things because we, we do hear people either on the very pro-abortion side, the very anti-abortion side, saying all these arbitrary metrics and saying, well, at, at this time and these seconds and this person and this person, whatever. And, and it's like, it's not, it's not that simple. It's not that reductive. You can't reduce it that much and do something where you can just say, this is the universal standard for everything because there is no universal standard for everything. There has to be at least some room for interpretation with everything else, even though there is such a thing as like absolute truth, for example, there, there are anything above that you have to really consider the interplay of everything, which is which is really interesting. And now taking that and looping it back to a thing you said earlier, I, I love this discussion at the end of your book about uncertainty and risk and, and things of that nature. So you were talking about uncertainty in very black and white terms earlier. I want to v- revisit there because basically you, I don't know if you said this analogy in the book. I don't think you did, but it, you kind of basically said it without saying it is that it's kind of like, you know, laws of energy. You can't create or destroy energy. You can just transfer it into something else. So you say inside of the book, uncertainty cannot be created or destroyed, but just transferred to something else. And so you do talk a lot about this specifically with things like policy in action or with patient care or something like that. So in your opinion, what is good uncertainty and why should we want to prioritize since we can't get rid of uncertainty? And I agree with you in, in this, in this assumption, why, what is good uncertainty and what should we do to prioritize good uncertainty, either in a medical context or in a life context, holistically? Yeah, as I phrase it, uncertainty guided by trust is good uncertainty. 
if you feel that the uncertainty that is there is fully aware, fully understood, or at least understood to the best of one's ability, and it's informed by trust, that's good uncertainty, right? So I talk about different levels of uncertainty, different perceptions that are responses to that uncertainty. And I conclude by saying that trust is the best perception to run with because it gives you the best awareness of your uncertainty. When you think about it in that way, it almost reduces it down to simple, treat others as you would like to be treated or be kind to others and others will be kind to you. It's so yeah. simple that it's complex, right? And it's so complex that it's simple. Yeah. You simply yeah. go by perceptions of trust and whatever you feel you're not sure of, if you feel comfortable in that not knowing because it comes from a place of trust, that's a good place to be. And more often than not, that uncertainty from a position of trust will be reciprocated with trust by the person you're choosing to trust. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and one last thing on this, kind of going from the realm of the uncertain to the realm of risk in itself. So science is founded traditionally, like it's, it's funda- foundational principle is calculated risk on this thing. I, I There is this thing that we are observing. I think we should run an experiment on this to see if it is true or if it is false. And we constantly reiterate off of those experiments to see if something is true or not. It's true in scientific method. It's true in medication. It's true in herbology. It's probably true everywhere else. I'm, I'm, again, I'm far from a scientist, but that's what I see. And so risk can only be taken to your point with those who have trust. So like one more time, kind of like expand on, on this and how that trust is slowly kind of getting chipped away at, because that's another thing you kind of talk about where your trust is getting, you know, a lot of people, their, their trust in the medical system, their trust in their doctors or trust in institutions their trust in science itself is getting chipped away at by things that, you know, when things do become rigid and things of that nature. So, so expand on what you mentioned with that, because I thought that was super interesting as well. Yeah. So I talk a lot about balance in medicine and I talk about balancing certain key components. So balancing virtue with the risk, balancing uncertainty against other parameters of known factors. And one of the things I allude to is that when you try to disrupt that balance, you're going to create unforeseen circumstances, unforeseen consequences. One of the examples I provide is our obsession with hygiene. Well, we have a balance with the bacteria around us. And if we try to maintain an overly hygienic living condition, what we're effectively going to do is enable autoimmune diseases and enable allergic responses that were other bodies' way of dealing with the bacteria and pathogens that we were fighting with or accustomed to fighting with for centuries, for millennia. So there's always this component of balance. So if we take the risk and elevate it, we take all other factors in healthcare and throw it out of order. Why would anybody want to conduct a clinical experiment if the risk of failure was so high? Look at in the pandemic. Regardless of what you may think of certain individuals, and I would agree that there were tremendous mistakes made at the highest policy level, but to then retroactively come back and then say, well, that mistake warrants criminal sanctions. That mistake warrants criminal sanctions. That may not. What you're doing is you're artificially elevating certain clinical decisions, whether rightly or wrongly made, and then increasing the risk of that mistake. Now, what happens then is nobody wants to make a decision. It's not as if you're going to increase the number of right decisions. You're going to decrease the number of overall decisions. And that's what people don't understand about healthcare. You can't make a behavior less risky by stopping it. You just make it more risky. Going back to the abortion issue, anytime one state increases the restriction on abortion, the number of abortions in the other state increases. And what happens is the patients drive longer to get their abortions, making the procedure more risky. So again, whether you are pro or anti-abortion, you have to understand those are the behavioral dynamics that you see. And you understand that those behavioral dynamics put patients at risk, 
whether you agree with that risk or disagree with that risk, that risk is there. Just like with hygiene, if you have an overly hygienic condition, you feel like you're doing what's right, but you fail to realize the body's underlying balance that goes alongside having bacteria and pathogens as a necessary counterbalance for a human immune system. So the whole idea of risk is that it should be acceptable and it should be controlled so that there is a certain degree of acceptable failure, acceptable risk, a la uncertainty, so that when it does arise, it's not penalized to the severe degree that it's altogether avoided. Yeah, of course. I think no better way to say it than that. So two more questions more on the personal note on the book since this now come out. Again, The Burden of Pain, number one Amazon bestseller by new minted bestselling author Jay Joshi. Dr. Jay Joshi, I should say. Um, so what was your goal of this book? So like, I, I think, you know, you and I have talked about this specifically, but, you know, for the audience and for anyone listening, what was your goal of this book and did you accomplish it? Do you feel at this point? I know it's early and, and you know, these things take time. I, I know because I published mine uh, last year and it's still kind of accelerating to a point of, you know, debuting and, and, and whichever and hopefully affecting more people. But what was your goal? And do you think that you are either have accomplished it or you're on your way to accomplishing it at this point right now? My goal was to really correct the narrative around the opioid epidemic and the overall overdose crisis. I feel that my book is resonating quite strongly with patients in the chronic pain community and slowly starting to percolate into the broader addiction medicine community. And by that, I feel that the book has already done much to reach my targeted goal when I wrote it, set out to write it. I want it to expand. I want it to continue. I feel like the book is less about myself the more it's out there and more about the way it impacts other people. Originally, I had written this because I wanted to get the truth out there. I wanted to show everybody what had happened to me and make sure things were right. But as I was starting to write it, as I was investing myself into the book and cultivating my ideas into words, I realized it was less about my own personal anguish and more about what I learned from it. And in many ways, the art of writing was quite cathartic in that it gave me a sense of peace and a sense of satisfaction that, wow, you're taking all this negative emotion, translating it into something positive, sublimating it into insights for people to learn from. So I, I feel like the best value my book can do is to give people hope and to know that they're not alone in suffering with a stigmatized medical condition or for a physician who's been unfairly targeted, that they're not alone. This has happened to other people before. Look at me. And by giving people strength and by allowing people to cultivate their own unique relationships, express their own experiences into positive emotions by using my book, that's a, that, that's a very powerful feeling. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And, and I agree with you when I talked about you or talked with you about this. I, I think that was well on the way. I'm sure it's more on the way now. And so um, what, what's next for you? Last question. What, what's next for you? What's next for this movement, hopefully, that it keeps growing into? Because I know the business model of Scribe Media and, and you know, it's coming out. You know, I want to you know send both of our condolences to the people that are currently going through a lot of very disruptive change over at Scribe Media. Some people were let yeah. go. Some people kind of re getting recycled over there. It's some pretty um, alarming news out of out of that company this morning. But um, they're they're our friends. You know, there are you know we we you know we wouldn't have gotten and be talking to one another if it wasn't for Scribe Media. So our our love out to them. But the business model model of Scribe Media is that you use this book to kind of launch something and really kind of get a message out there and really capitalize and kind of go up the funnel on that message. So what is, what is next for you? Are you going to try, are you going to do public speaking? Are you going to do tours? Are you going to try to do more book signings? Like, like what, what is this, what do you see this going into in an ideal world for, for Jay Joshi, if his message gets out there properly? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And, you know, to echo your sentiments, you know, uh, apologies to, um, you know, my, um, uh, author liaisons both of them who had worked with me uh, i hope that everything is well with you and to everybody at scribe that has been laid off so you know my apologies for everything that you're going through as well um really what's next for me is to give mainstream legitimacy 
to the stories told in my book and identifying what are the best vehicles to do that. So I just got um, enlisted to speak at Pain Week, which is the largest uh, medical conference on pain and pain management. Uh, I'm going to be doing a book signing and speech there. Uh, It's going to be over 5,000 attendees, and then it's going to be broadcasted virtually throughout the country. Um, That's going to be a very large platform. That's a speaking platform. Um, Continue to do podcasts. uh, But really, it's the medium is the message. My telling of the story is the goal. And the more I tell it, the more confidence I have in myself, the more legitimacy I give to those who have been affected in similar ways as I have. And so I just want to continue to tell my story, continue to advocate for patients with chronic pain, substance use dependency, that were mistreated in the opioid epidemic, that have had physicians who were mistreated, and for whatever reason, just haven't been able to get their voices out there. I think it's one of those situations where majority of the public knows the policy on opioids is wrong, but very few people have been able to stand up against the broader narrative. And I hope that this book can be one that does that. The book is Burden of Pain. Its author is Dr. J.K. Joshi, the man you have just heard speak with me for the last hour. Jay, thank you so much for this, man. This has been this has been truly an enlightening conversation. Again, something I didn't really know a lot about, and I don't think a lot something is, you know, as known to a lot of people. So um, you're doing a great service, man. I knew that your book would be a hit as soon as we talked about it all those many months ago that we got introduced to one another. And I'm I'm so happy for you, man. I'm so glad it's working out for you and that you're uh, you're reaping all the rewards of all your hard work, man. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Across. On the day, open your mind, and we'll catch you guys next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit, and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? Shit.